All right, welcome to another episode of the Innovation Room. Um, today, we'll be focusing on a very important and interesting, but um, often a challenging topic, um, and that is the pricing of innovation and new product development. Um, so to help us with that, we have Kyle Wester with us. Um, he currently works as a manager for Wiglaf Pricing and has actually written a book on the topic. Um, so welcome. Um, can you tell our listeners a little more about yourself and your background and, and how you first got interested uh, uh, in the pricing of innovation? Sure. And thank you, Jesse, for having me. Uh, like you said, my name is Kyle Westra. I'm a manager for Wiglaf Pricing. Uh, we're a boutique pricing consultancy that helps executives manage price better. And oftentimes that means figuring out the right price and pricing for new product development as well. Uh, my background originally is actually more in international relations and economics. Um, I worked in foreign policy for several years before getting my MBA and, and uh, moving more into digital business and, and pricing strategy in particular. I've been doing pricing strategy for uh, just about six years now. And it's been a really great field for me. It's um, what I like to call an interstitial field, right? It touches on so many different issues. Uh, it's affected by and has effects on sales, marketing, finance, product, operations, uh, basically everything within the organization, which means it's a really powerful function. But also historically, it's it's been something of uh, a subset of marketing and hasn't received enough focus on its own. And uh, one of the issues with that, too, is that being part of marketing, traditionally, it hasn't always gotten the right feedback from other parts of the organization as well. So uh, an important part of modern pricing is, is to act as that interstitial person within organizations, collect information and, and feedback from lots of different stakeholders and figure out how to get everyone rowing in the same direction together. Um, personally, Coming from this international relations background, uh, it's it's been really great too. We, in normal times, we do a lot of our work outside of the country, <laughs> so uh, Europe, Latin America, a bit in Middle East and uh, uh, Australia and in Asia as well. Uh, these these days we have to meet uh, remotely, but it's 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 still great to be making these types of connections across the world. Um, in terms of pricing and new product development in particular, I suppose I've I've long had an interest in entrepreneurship. I've worked for a couple of small startups and uh, from the economic side, just interested in how markets and economies develop. Uh, and innovation is, is obviously such a important part of that. And from the pricing perspective, innovation is really where pricing can help set the stage for maximum success. Uh, not only what the, the pricing strategy should be at a high level, but the actual pricing model. So or is this a one-time sale? Is this a subscription? Is this um, usage-based? And then pricing metrics. So per person, per megabyte, per square foot. Um, and then the actual price points themselves. So, you know, the dollars and euros associated with what the customer actually sees. Um, a lot mm -hmm. of times I think pricing is considered just that last point, just the price points, but it's really this, yeah. this entire... Uh, macro to micro process. And again, touching so many different areas within the organization. One of the reasons um, also that pricing is so important for new product development, um, and I'll kind of say product 
uh, throughout this, but I really mean a product or a service or an offering. Yeah. You know, it could be something tangible or, or not. Um, but you really only get one shot before you reach market, right? Um, once a price is out there or a pricing structure, it's a lot harder to change it. Once customers are starting to become accustomed to how it has been sold, uh, once they get anchored on the price point that you introduce it with, it becomes a lot harder to change things after the fact. So mm-hmm. that really speaks to the importance of, of getting it right the first time and, and putting in the time and effort and energy required to get pricing done right before the product hits the market. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. And I think, uh, like, um, of course, um, when you go into and think about like pricing, um, it is it's so multifaceted as you talked about that it, that it might be difficult to kind of like um, for many people to kind of like understand what actually goes into it and how you can first start approaching it. Um, so um, when you talk about this uh, in the context of especially like new products and innovations, um, how would you kind of like frame frame it? Is it like where do you lo- draw the line um, of a business model uh, and pricing and uh, these other uh, like topics that are like so closely related to one another? Right. Well, I think because they're so closely related to each other, you can't really draw firm lines between mm-hmm. them. Um, but clearly an important part of the business model needs to be a sense of the, the price and the pricing and how you anticipate to sell this in a profitable manner, right? Yeah. Um, so this idea of baking profitability in from the beginning, already having a sense of what types of customers you're looking to serve, what problems they have, how different customers might value your offering differently from, from uh, one another. So mm-hmm. speaking to customer segmentation and price segmentation, um, from our perspective, that's really critical. That's a critical part of the entire product. Otherwise, you might uh, spend years developing something that people really don't want or there's no way to to sell it profitably and yeah, if yeah. you can't sell it profitably then you don't really have a business <laughs> that's true um i think part of what what makes um this such a difficult topic is that for like for many companies that have been doing business for a long time with an existing product of course you have a lot of data that you can kind of like base your assumptions on. And I think that's part of what makes pricing so difficult for innovations and new products in general. So what are your thoughts on kind of like that front? Yeah, so you're you're absolutely right. One of the benefits of repricing and, and uh, having pricing as a continuous process after a product is launched, we're, we're certainly in, in favor of that. And that's something that companies must do as well in order to stay relevant. Uh, but you're right that one of the advantages uh, uh, at that stage is that you have a lot more market feedback and a better mm-hmm. sense of how your competition is reacting to. So you have a lot more external data to input into your models to better understand, uh, are, you, are you correctly understanding the, the value that you're creating for your customers? Are you capturing your fair share of that? Is your pricing helping your sales cycle rather than being a impediment to it? Mm-hmm. So you're absolutely right that during new product development and and innovation, you're a lot less sure at at kind of a fundamental level how customers and the market and competitors are going to perceive the product. Um, What we try to do as an initial stage is is think more about uh, price estimation rather than price clarification or actual market pricing. 
So it's, it's okay to start at a broader level, uh, at a less granular level, and at least get a sense, get an estimate of what do we think this product is worth to different segments of customers? Uh, how can we capture that? And what type of, of model enables us to grow our revenue and our profitability as we grow the amount of customers too? So when we go through pricing and new product development, the first stage is, is based on internal understanding. Um, and sometimes for, for a completely new innovative product, that might be about the best you can get is getting different executives representing these different parts of the company and that are familiar with the customers you're looking to get together in the same room and, and really hash out what problems are we trying to solve? How does our product uh, address those problems better than the alternatives? and keeping in mind that the alternative might simply be do nothing, right? The customer always has a choice to buy your product or not. There may be a competitor that offers the same thing where they might simply do what they were doing before. Yeah. Um, instead of Excel, they might just use pen and paper rather than an alternative spreadsheet uh, application, for instance. Yeah. Um, but starting internally, you at least can get a good initial draft on what the value is on the table, again, how we expect to be able to charge for it and really get a sense of, is there a, is there a market opportunity here or not? Yeah. From that point, it's easier to uh, identify the, the known unknowns, the areas where you could use more information. And at that point, voice of customer research or, or other methods of addressing the actual market can be useful for, for, um, for further clarifying some of your assumptions, checking those assumptions, and uh, getting more detail and granularity as to the actual prices that that your customers might be willing to to pay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, you did a pretty good job of answering my next next question. That was actually going to be about the process of how do you then kind of like start working on the topic and and how do you usually like propose your customers approach this topic. So. Um, if you kind of like look at the big picture, is there anything else you'd like to add to how the process typically goes and how do you think uh, most people should approach it? Well, well, um, I would separate how the process normally goes from how most people should address it. I'd say, unfortunately, <laughs> a, a lot of the time, especially for younger companies and, and less experienced executives, although the, it can be this way at very large uh, experienced companies as well, they tend to leave these pricing decisions until the very last minute and just kind of slap a number at, at the end um, or, or look at what the competition is doing and, and simply copy their number. Um, the problem there, of course, is that you're, you're running a really dangerous risk of undervaluing yourself and the uh, product or service that you're offering, mm -hmm. um, especially if it's something that's going for more of a premium early adopter type market, those tend to be the types of customers that are willing to pay a price premium and are less uh, price sensitive. So being able to capture higher margin and higher value from those customers also enables you to fund further investment and development down, down the pipeline, right? So um, the, the biggest mistake I think is, is related to what we've already been talking about and in, in not doing that, not thinking about profitability early on, not thinking about how you're going to uh, address the, the customers that you think are interested in your product and um, not putting the, the time and effort required into thinking, how can you make pricing 
a, a beneficial attribute for this product, something that helps customers interact with it and purchase it rather than something that stands in the way as a barrier between mm. customers and, and the product. Um, so how we think customers should go about this and how we work with, with very large and very small uh, companies to, to do this type of work um, in, in broad strokes is related to that price estimation early phase and then price clarification later on. Um, sometimes just the price estimation, just a relatively rough cut is good enough to decide whether to go ahead with the product or not. Um, the, the main tool used for that is, is something called economic value to customer or EVC. And that's a uh, quantitative methodology for, um, for determining what the value drivers are of your product to the customers, what that differential value is compared to the alternative in, in, in what ways are you, is your product better? In which ways is your product worse? And totaling the, that up into a picture of, uh, again, in a differential sense, in a comparative sense, since customers are always making comparisons, they always have alternatives. What is your value creation compared to your competitors? A lot of times for innovation, we're aiming to create more value than the competitors, but it's just as legitimate to create something that's lower value and consequentially lower price as well. Um, but something like EVC is a great way to figure out where you are. Uh, the, the worst situation is thinking that you have more value than the customers and then you're actually crunching the numbers and you realize, oh, no, wait, we, we're, we're not at all. Um, and we need to completely rethink the types of customers we can address or, or maybe yeah. rethink what constitutes the, the product that we're trying to create. Uh, in order to reach that value advantaged uh, uh, position. Um, so that's all in the, the price estimation phase. Uh, um, other methodologies that some of the, the viewers might be familiar with are called Gabber-Granger and Van Westerndorp price sensitivity meter. Uh, those are kind of complicated names, but there, there are other methods to, to approximate what customers might be willing to pay for your product. Those two in particular, um, rather than being internally focused are external. So you're going out to the market, you are um, using different survey methodologies to, to basically ask your customers, would they be willing to pay this amount of money or this amount or this amount? Um, get a sense of, of, of where you could be in terms of price bands or price range. The um, weaknesses of those is, well, one, you need to have the time and money and effort to go out and do market research. And two, they're just fundamental biases in asking someone what uh, they think they will be willing to pay. And that's mm -hmm. especially true for innovation, right? The first time someone saw an iPhone uh, and didn't really know what to do with it, if mm -hmm. Apple had simply asked people what they would have been willing to pay, they would have really sold themselves short. Um, yeah. So, so those, those can be useful puzzle pieces, but um, the, the danger we see is sometimes people treat uh, either of those methodologies as the be all and end all. And it's, it's, really, um, it's really much more of a starting point. Yeah, we, used, yeah. um, we used those actually in my uh, MBA class. The way we learned them was, was uh, thinking about what the, the price of a cup of soup uh, from the cafeteria should be, and right, and we we do some market research. We identify different potential price points, and uh, at the end, let's say we came back with 
a, uh, a cup of soup should be, should be between three and $6. Well, great. I, I guess that's, that's some information, but that's quite a large range, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it says nothing about where in that range you should fall. And that's kind of the range that we probably could have guessed beforehand, right? Yeah, just looking yeah. at uh, what the competition's out there and, and just our own gut sense. So um, it's really a question of whether those, those tools will add to your understanding or kind of confirm what you already know. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's all on the, the price estimation side. Yeah. And then the price clarification side, once you've decided that it looks like there's something profitable here that we should pursue, that's where um, your choices start to, uh, there's kind of a decision tree, I, I, would, I would say, based on what your revenue expectations are for the, the product, uh, how many customers you think you're going to be addressing, and uh, how much time you have until launch. Uh, depending on the answers to, the, to, to those, perhaps the, the uh, simply refining the economic value to customer, the EVC that we've already developed is the best path. Um, mm -hmm. Or sometimes doing additional voice of customer uh, market research, whether that's qualitative or quantitative, can be useful in informing your models. And then um, kind of at the, at the highest range there, there's a really great methodology called conjoint analysis, which it's not new, it's been around for decades, but it's really still um, the best method for, for getting a, um, a quantitatively defensible sense from potential customers of how they value different parts of your product. So whereas the Gabbard-Granger and the Van Westerndorp depend on customers telling you what prices they'd be willing to pay, uh, conjoint analysis has a nifty way about it of it's actually able to tease out um, the, the implicit uh, value and implicit assumptions that, that customers are making when they uh, choose between different products. Um, it's, it's, uh, it, I won't go into it more detail than that, but, <laughs> but it, it removes many of those biases of those, those previous, yeah. um, uh, previous methodologies, but it, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes money, and it's really geared toward uh, certain types of products where you can uh, almost like you have levers and adjust what some of the parameters and features are uh, in yeah. a comparative sense to to uh, figure out what the relative value of of each one of those features is. Yeah, so more for like software and services, but uh, perhaps not so much for certain widgets. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, uh, we touched on this a little bit already. Um, but when you think about some common mistakes innovators do when it comes to pricing, are there any kind of like other, other mistakes that you think uh, are especially common for innovators? Sure. Um, I'd say one of the biggest one is, is around the, the pricing model and the pricing metrics I referred to. So less about the actual price and more about um, how that uh, the, the, the method by which the price is charged. So subscription or, um, let's just take the case of a subscription. Is it per user? Is it per um, per hectare? Is it is it per gallon? Um, and in figuring out what the right metric is that aligns as closely as possible to the to the value that uh, the product or service is is um, is delivering. That way, as you're uh, providing more value and the customer is using your product or service more, you're getting more in return. Um, the opposite of that would be, for instance, um, know of a, uh, 
productivity software uh, who's, it was a subscription service SaaS, um, but their model was to, to price per user. So if you think about it, it's a productivity software. So if they're doing their job well, fewer users over time will need to use it. Mm-hmm. So if they're charging per user, they're actually cutting themselves off at the knees. They're creating their <laughs> own headwind and making it so that the better job they do, the less money they make. Mm-hmm. And I think we can agree that <laughs> that's not what we want. Right? <laughs> um, not only is that not what we want as, as innovators, but it's really confusing for customers too, right? Customers yeah. aren't stupid. So if they see something like that, I think it creates um, uh, dissonance and, and confusion on, on the customer side as well. Um, and if it's such a problem that you know it's it's affecting your your core profitability and revenue numbers, then you can't survive as a company, and your your customers aren't going to like that either. Um, yeah. So so really thinking through, you know, in what ways are we creating value, and how can we align from a value based pricing perspective? not only our pricing models and our metrics, but the price points as well. I think that's, that's one of the key, the key issues. Um, another one that I talk about quite a bit in, in my book, which is called The New Invisible Hand, is this issue around uh, pricing transparency and how um, price and pricing transparency can be used uh, to better address your customers and, and emphasize the, the brand statements and marketing, um, marketing strategy that, that you want to make. One of the uh, interesting cases there would be uh, Uber, the, the ride hailing company, and uh, how over the course of their lifetime, they've had difficulties in transparency and explaining their surge pricing to customers. Um, at least in the United States, they went through, they have gone through, and I'm sure will continue to go through iterations of showing what the uh, multiplier effect would be um, in terms of a, of a percentage, in terms of dollars, um, not showing the multiplier at all, but showing you what the end price will be, or simply notifying you that surge pricing is in effect, but not seeing any numbers behind that. And the, the constant question they were trying to solve is, is how do we communicate this fairly and honestly to customers without being a hurdle to them understanding and, and using the product, right? Mm-hmm. And the dangers of, of bad um, communication and, and a lack of, of useful transparency is hurting your brand and turning off customers. And in Uber's case as well, um, again, at least in the U- United States, but also as I know in, in much of, of Europe is inviting regulatory scrutiny as well. Yeah. Um, um, so I think Uber has improved a lot in this way again, at least in, in the United, United States, what they've landed on for now at least is, is um, they've decided I think correctly that customers don't really care about seeing the multiplier. They don't really know what to do with it. Prices mm-hmm. are 1.2 times higher than normal, 1.3 times higher than normal. Um, what I care about as a customer is what is, it gonna, what is it gonna cost me at the end, right? Yeah. So, so what they do now is, is down to the very dollars and cents say, this is what this ride is gonna cost you. And if yeah. you've taken, you know, roughly that ride before, you know, is that higher or lower than, than usual, but there are no more surprises about, um, you know, hypothetically, I should have known 
you know, the, the normal cost of the ride is this, but it's times 130%. And then there's a surcharge for, for this, this, this. <laughs> there's much less confusion about the end price. So that's yeah. what I call price transparency. They've actually mm -hmm. decreased pricing transparency. It's less clear from the outside how they're arriving at that number. It's kind of a, a black box. Um, but the end result, I think, is better for customers and, and better for the company as well. Um, so, so that's a, a, a great example of, of identifying something that's not working for your customers and, and working to fix it, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think too, just one of the one of the big reasons to to do this type of work beforehand is, uh, you know, we've worked with a, a medical devices company, and thankfully, you know, we were involved fairly early in their product development cycle. But it, it turns out that internally, they misunderstood the value of their product by about a factor of two. And these aren't cheap products, right? We're talking mm. hundreds of thousands of dollars. So the danger of not uh, taking the time to properly uh, understand how customers are thinking about your product and how you're creating value is you're leaving so much money on the table. And like I said before, you know, as, as people uh, interested in, in innovation and whose jobs depend on, on innovation, uh, the, the money for development has to come from somewhere. And if your company has, or your company or your product has lower margins, lower revenue than it could, then that's all less money available for future innovation and, and future development. Yeah, exactly. And it's not just uh, about your bottom line, but also you being able to fund future uh, innovation that actually benefits your customers and, and drives value for them going forward. So Yeah, absolutely. One of the, the nice things about uh, pricing done right, and especially price segmentation, so figuring out different groups of customers that value your product differently and um, you know, let's say private sector uh, is willing to pay up here and academic uh, is willing to pay down here and figuring out a way to uh, segment those and charge both of those prices, um, you're able to serve more customers and make more money at the same time. So it's really a win-win. Mm -hmm. uh, your your company is going to get better because you have more money to, to pour back into innovation and your customers are better off too because you're able to serve two different segments rather than you know, only charging high and only capturing that private side of the market. And, you know, the academic side just has to figure it out mm -hmm. um, by, by putting that strategy into your pricing, you're able to address both markets at the same time. Cool. Cool. Um, then if we kind of like transfer over to um, the positive side of things, uh, can you share an example of how, when you do all of this right, how can it can really like impact the business positively? Sure. One of the most interesting cases for me in, in the last uh, about 10 years, um, I think it only exists in the US, but it's called Dollar Shave Club. Are you familiar with that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it's it's was basically an early um, um, delivery subscription service. So instead of buying your, your razors, uh, you know, at, at the convenience store when you need them, Dollar Shave Club would deliver a razor to your door every month. Uh, clearly, I would not be a uh, target customer, <laughs> but I understand there are people out there who need a razor month. And, um, and uh, so kind of set it and forget it. You always have the razor that you need. So what I really love about this case is that it was purely innovation on its pricing strategy. It was merely changing something from a one-time purchase to a subscription. 
there wasn't anything special about the razors. They were just rebranded Dorco razors that, you know, I'm sure they bought in bulk from, from China and there's, there's nothing wrong with that, but um, the, the value that they were creating for customers was purely from uh, a more convenient way to buy and a more convenient way to interact with the, with the company. Um, it worked out very well for them. Uh, they were sold to Unilever for $1 billion uh, after, I think they had been in existence for about nine years by that point. So yeah. nine years to, to evaluation of $1 billion purely on uh, innovating the pricing strategy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something really interesting about uh, examples like Uber as well. Um, the, the core innovation there is, is technological, but it's also pricing. It's about... Um, it's, it's about how we use pricing to, to address modern customers' needs better than, than antiquated taxi services. And how do we kind of merge this, this um, mobile device that people always have with them with this dynamic pricing uh, to, to match supply and demand and, and create something that's uh, you know, seen as, as really invaluable across the world. Um, I, a... Airline example in, in the U.S., we have an airline called uh, Southwest, which uh, started primarily in Texas and in our, our Southwest, hence the name. Um, but kind of rare among U.S. carriers, uh, it's actually able to command brand loyalty. There are, are people who are, are really committed to the brand. Mm-hmm. And um, they have a little bit of different business operations. They... they um, you can't reserve a seat on them. It's just, uh, you know, they, they fill up the plane as they go, which actually leads to faster boarding times and faster turnaround. Um, the, the entire fleet is one model of aircraft. Uh, so it makes maintenance and, and training for the pilots a lot easier. They tend to go to kind of the tier two airports in a city uh, rather than the main one. Um, but one of their big pushes too is around pricing and, and price trans- transparency. Um, so they actually uh, have, have branded it as uh, um, price transparency. Transparency. So mm-hmm. um, this idea that they they are simply they are easy to buy from because they don't have hidden fees, uh, which I think is really interesting because the implication there is that you're getting good value, you're getting good your uh, benefits for the price, but they're not actually saying that they're the lowest price, and they're they're usually not. But what they're saying is because we don't charge for a checked bag, because we don't have change fees, um, that should be worth something. You should be mm. w- willing to pay a premium implicitly for that level of service and for that ease of working with our company. So I think that's another way in which uh, pricing strategy is really connected well with their brand strategy. And yeah. they know what type of customer they want to go for. They know what they stand for as a company and what their differentiators are. And they're figuring out how to use pricing to help tell that story rather than cut against that story. Um, just from our, from our own work, it's, it's critical to get uh, sales teams um, on board as well, right? Not only to mm-hmm. get their input from the beginning, especially in terms of, of what customers are valuing, but also get them on board with this idea of selling value rather than selling the price point and uh, you know, immediately capitulating on, on price if there's any pushback um, rather than just meeting what the competition is offering. You know, be, be able to tell the story of, of the value that your, your product is, is delivering. And this is a way that the uh, economic value to customer can come into play 
again too. You've kind of already built the model that tells the story of the value you're creating with real dollars and cents or, or euros uh, uh, attached to that story. So it really gives salespeople um, a great tool in their toolbox for telling that story back to customers and being able to articulate the value that they're creating. Um, so for us, part of that comes in with sales incentives too. Uh, mm. We want to make sure that sales teams are properly uh, incentivized and commissioned to um, to defend price and to, to to defend margin dollars, and um, that that can be quite a big shift for for companies having salespeople uh, incentivized on margin contribution rather than volume or revenue or, or units or something like that. But at companies where we've uh, implemented those types of schemes, one saw. And it was a 6% increase in, in gross margin in less than uh -huh. a year, which is mm. really huge just for, yeah. just for a change in how sales is compensated and, and really mm. a change in mindset and a change in calculation there. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, you know, it's, it's uh, impactful and it's really rewarding too to, to be able to see those types of changes in organizations once they start thinking about all the different ways in which pricing can be considered something strategic and something that um, something critically that that uh, helps the sales team rather than just gets in the sales way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If we kind of like go um, back a little bit and then think about someone who's kind of like now working on a new uh, business or product or innovation, what level of, of precision do you think that they should go into um, in each of the stages you talked about? Yeah, so it's... Um, what you're really looking for in the estimation phase, uh, as I've talked about, is is really a sense of, do we have a profitable product here? Mm -hmm. um, you want it to bring you to the point where you can confidently say we should go or we should no go. You know, we should pursue this project or we should abandon now before we invest more time into it. Or, um, or of course, reassess what the product is or, or who it's valid for. Um, so really, uh, at, at that point, you're more looking for enough evidence to say, yes, we have something here that we should keep pursuing, or, mm -hmm. or um, it doesn't look like there's a, a way to sell this profitably in the end. Yeah, yeah. Once you're getting more into price clarification, that's where, um, especially in terms of business model development, you want to get a lot more specific about how much you'll be able to, uh, how much value you're creating for different customer segments, how much of that uh, is is capturable price as well, and <clears throat> start getting more into the details of the, the commercialization and the go-to-market strategy as well, of which pricing is a is a critical part. Um, but the the end goal of the clarification stage is to have your launch price. So at that point, you're really getting into the nuts and bolts, really getting into the details of of um, how much value is being created by these these uh, different benefits. Uh, who is that uh, value uh, valid for? How much of that are they willing to pay for? Getting much more precise about who your competition is for different segments as well, and. Um, as I've said, that's that's also the stage in which you're if if you have uh, the the time and the 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 money and the the resources to to go for uh, external sources of information as well, whether voice of customer or or some of those other methodologies I talked about. That's where you're bringing these other pieces of the puzzle into play too, and yeah. using those as kind of multiple lenses to approach pricing. 
with and getting a, a better holistic picture of, uh, again, the value that you're creating and the, the capturable price you can get from that. Mm-hmm. And, and kind of like uh, linking those to the product development cycle. So the um, estimation t- then typically happens during the concept phases and then during the prototyping and development phases, you're then working on the clarification, right? Yes. Yep. Yep. That's how I would think about it. Um, you you already kind of like touched on the, like using those external sources. Um, um, do you think that let, there's also kind of like a law of diminishing returns for doing that external research or, or um, how kind of like do you suggest um, those, uh, which is most of us, of course, who have a limited budget on, on how do you kind of like spend, spend the budget on, on doing research related to pricing? We have a white paper on this that that goes into more details and happy to share that with your audience afterwards. Um, but uh, uh, writ large, it really just depends on those, those three factors that I outlined before. So revenue expectations, how large of a opportunity do we think this is? Do we think it's you know relatively niche, in which case uh, a lower time and in, in money investment makes sense? If we think this is a really big opportunity, then, you know, uh, improving price one, two, three percent over millions, millions of dollars is is a really big opportunity and, and something that's worth putting a little more time and effort into. Um, so revenue expectations, the customer count again as well, especially for some of these more um, <clears throat> more of these uh, quantitative and statistical methods like conjoint analysis, you need a relatively high number of customers to get good data back. Yeah. Um, if if this is something you're selling to to three large customers, five large customers, those those type types of tools aren't going to be as useful mm-hmm. uh, in those situations. Um, and then time constraint too. Uh, doing good quality market research takes time. Um, yeah. And you, if you have a, a launch uh, date in mind or or other constraints as kind of your backstop, then you want to be able to. Of course, make sure that, that you're hitting everything you need to hit in time, and um, uh, time is a is a constraint on us all. <laughs> needless to say, right? So, mm-hmm. so sometimes we we simply don't have the time, and and we need to move faster and and um, get to market with with our best estimates and our and our best understandings, and adjust on the fly rather than uh, devote all of the time on on the front end. Um, of course, it's ideal if if we can. Um, do more of the pre-work uh, before the launch price, because again, once a price and, and pricing model are, are out there, it's it's a lot harder to, to change it. But um, needless to say, once your price is, is out there, then you start getting a lot of really great feedback too, in terms of what's resonating with customers and what's not. Uh, again, in terms of the actual price points, the price metrics, the price models, the pricing strategy, your segmentation, your you know your um, your channel strategy, your um, um, uh, your commercialization in general, and so part of the ongoing job of of pricing strategy and, and pricing analysis is using that information to feed back into our our current understanding and our in our models and and um, adjusting prices, uh, working with the sales team, working with marketing. Uh, working with finance and using all of that information to, in in you know, kind of a, a continuous improvement cycle, to yeah. keep getting better as we go. We, mm-hmm. No matter how much time we we put in beforehand, it's not going to be perfect. So that that type of post-launch follow-up 
and continuous work is is always necessary. Uh, mm-hmm. Just needless to say, if uh, the more we can put our best foot forward initially, the the easier job we'll have going forward. Yeah. And of course, the markets are, are shifting. So it's not a like a right. static marketplace that you're going in. So, so, uh, so definitely makes sense to kind of like pursue um, continued efforts on this front there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we're getting to close to the end of on end of the discussion. Um, before we kind of like wrap things up, um, if you want to give like a super quick like cheat sheet for those who just want to try to get uh, um, a pricing uh, done well. Sure. That's a, that's a great question. Um, I, I think it, just going back to the fundamentals of, of thinking about pricing, even, even just doing that uh, at an earlier stage is going to put you ahead of a lot of the competition. Um, this idea of baking uh, profitability into your offerings by involving pricing early on in innovation and new product development, um, you know, get a good sense of, of whether there is a, audience out there that's willing to pay for your offerings and pay at a point that makes it profitable for you beforehand mm-hmm. rather than uh, spend a lot of time and, and effort creating a wonderful product that no one wants to buy mm-hmm. right that's 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 uh, everyone's worst case mm-hmm. um, and uh, people if people are interested in, in learning more about this I would really encourage them to uh, to to poke around uh, not only our website, but um, there's a, a international pricing society that's uh, pricingsociety.com and really just learn more about pricing as you have the science side, the more quantitative side, and also the art side, which again, makes it really interesting to people with, with not just straight up business backgrounds like myself. Mm-hmm. There's, there's so much um, about psychology and organizational development and, and branding and um, you know, how customers are, are behaving when they actually interact with your, with your product. That's all really critical information for pricing as well, which is mm-hmm. much more on the art side. And then on yeah. the science side, of course, you can do, um, uh, depending on the type of product and, and, and the, the market situation, much more around uh, statistical analysis, econometric regression, um, these, these quantitative market uh, research methodolo- methodologies that I've mentioned. Um, and it's really the, the combination of those that make uh, good pricing good. Mm-hmm. So um, just l- learning more about that is, is what I would encourage people to. So pricing is really the, the strongest lever we have around profitability of a product or, or a company. Uh, it's much better to improve pricing by 1% than to reduce costs by 1%. <laughs> um, you, have, you have a much larger effect on the bottom line, um, uh, doing a better job with pricing, spending an extra marginal, you know, dollar or hour uh, invested into pricing than you do almost anywhere else. So, so um, really, the overall message would be one of of the the, the centricity and the 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 uh, kind of foundational support that pricing can be um, versus simply being a, a an afterthought and something that's um, tacked on at the at the end. Cool, cool. Um, we'll definitely uh, put links to all the resources to your website and, and the, the other places that you mentioned before. Um, anything else you'd like to, to share with our listeners um, on the topic before we wrap up? No, I think that's about it. Um, thank you very much, Jesse, for the time. I, I really appreciate it. I would just encourage if anyone has questions, please feel to reach out uh, to me. I'm very active on LinkedIn and um, we'll, we'll make sure that uh, all of the 
relevant links are are um, in the show notes afterwards and, and shared. So just Perfect. thank you again. Perfect. Thank you again for, for coming on the show. Uh, my pleasure. Take care.